Getting into college was once a normal teenage rite of passage. Now it's a global Hunger Games. You're competing against the kid at the best school in Singapore. Slate and Panoply are here to help. Our new podcast, Getting In, follows a group of seniors through the college application process in real time. Along the way, the students and listeners will get advice from experts with decades of experience. Getting In, a podcast about demystifying college admissions and finding the right fit for every student. Available in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. This episode of the Slate Culture Gabfest is sponsored by Open Account, a podcast series created by Sujin Pak and Umpqua Bank. Open Account explores through honest and sometimes comical interviews our uncomfortable silence around money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest live from Chicago edition. Good. That was awesome. Yeah, they, <laughs> they made L.A. and Boston look freaking lame by comparison. <laughs> On today's show, Black Mass is the new movie starring Johnny Depp as legendary South Boston sociopath mobster James Whitey Bulger. And then we discuss the legacy of The Second City and are joined by two members of their ETC theater ensemble who will perform, then help us dissect their performance along the way to rendering it completely unfunny. <laughs> And finally, and I'm, I'm, actually, I'm actually somewhat serious about this, on a serious note, we do not pander at live shows. Yes, there's some call for warm applause and on and on, so I want you to keep this in mind when I say that our third topic is Donald Trump. <laughs> Behave, or we're going to do the other possible third topic, which was time, ontology, and language. <laughs> Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Steve. And of course, Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Steven. All right, let's dig in. Black Mass is the new wide-release gangster picture, gangster picture about the notorious psychopath gangster James. I think the word gangster plays heavily <laughs> in my intro here. A little editing would have helped. James Whitey Bulger. Bulger rose from the uh, from petty street thug to Boston kingpin in part because of an unlikely partner, the FBI. Bulger is played with a kind of seething reptilian grace by Johnny Depp. His brother is the always fetching Benedict Cumberbatch, and Joel Edgerton plays FBI agent, the FBI agent who makes the Faustian handshake on behalf of the federal government. Why don't we watch a clip? We can watch a clip, yeah? Yeah. Let's do. And Morris, what? Did you marinate the steak in because it's out of this world? You're killing me with it's no, no. It's a family secret. Oh. Come on, you gotta tell me that. Come on, you could do it. Come on. <laughs> What's the family secret recipe? It's gr- it's ground garlic, and a little bit of soy. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I thought it was a family secret. It's a recipe. No. 
you said to me, this is a family secret, and you gave it up to me, boom. Don't look to John, because he's not going to help you. You spill the secret family recipe today, maybe you spill about me tomorrow. Is that something maybe that's a possibility? Listen, I was just saying. You were just saying. Just saying gets people sent to Allenwood. Just saying could get you buried real quick. <laughs> Dana, uh, as I've said many times before, I, there we go. I don't, um, I don't read your reviews before I ask you your opinion. I want to hear it fresh. I'm very curious to know what you thought of this movie. You know, this clip, I'm glad we had a, a clip because it, it brought up a few things I wanted to say about this movie. First of all, I liked Black Mass a lot more than I expected to. It seems to me like the genre of the gangster picture is pretty played out and it's hard to find anything fresh. And the idea of Johnny Depp playing Whitey Bulger didn't seem like the best casting. The whole thing felt a little bit gimmicky and stunty. And I'm not going to say that it, you know, it reinvents the genre. It's the greatest movie of the year. But I really liked this and, uh, and really liked Depp's performance in it. And I think as you can see in that scene with Peter Sarsgaard, it has this um, it, it has this way, well, like every gangster picture since Goodfellas, it's very indebted to Goodfellas. And I think what it really shows in that scene is this, um, this kind of the rhythm of the gangster, you know, way, the way that, that Depp's Whitey Bulger doesn't quite have the pacing or the, the reaction speed of everyone else in the scene, that he's, his mind is going a little bit faster on a different track somewhere else. Peter Sarsgaard's character, who's kind of a small-time hood, who, as you see, is being paid to not do a hit on someone, uh, doesn't quite get where he's going or what the point of this transaction is. And the movie is good at keeping you off balance in that way and keeping Bulger just a, a little bit of a step ahead of you. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be you know, a, a huge cheerleader for this movie, but I liked it a lot more than I thought mm-hmm. I was going to. And I think it's the best work Johnny Depp has done in many years. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, Julia, I have to ask you, um, uh, is that your dad in the film? <laughs> it doesn't give anything, to way to, to, anything away to say that near the end of the film or towards the end of the film, two Boston Globe reporters play a pretty huge role. In, in the trajectory, and of it's the based final on a book. It's, it's based on a book by two Boston Globe reporters. So, it, although it's never said in the movie, the book Black Mass that it's based on is by these reporters who followed the whole story. And who are were not my dad and are not played by my dad, despite the fact that my dad <laughs> also worked at the Boston Globe. When this happened, we should clarify. <laughs> um, no, that was not my dad. But but I will say. Yeah, I so I did not grow up particularly steeped in the legend of Whitey Bulger, even though I, my childhood in Boston coincided with his time as a crime kingpin. I mean, his name was bandied about, but um, the legend and lore did not make it to the particular uh, playgrounds that I was growing up on. You bought um, your drugs elsewhere? Bought my drugs elsewhere, yeah. Um, <laughs> and this movie, I mean, for just to get, to get the Boston angle of it out of the way briefly, I like this movie so cinematography and I like its treatment of the city and it, 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 it's very bleached, it's very grim I mean I think this is a movie about mobster as charming sociopath, emphasis on the sociopath like it, it really try and tries to drain the glamour out of mob life in a way that I think is admirable and somewhat distinct from the way a lot of other mobster movies a lot of other mobster movies are like oh yeah yeah there was so much mayhem and carnage but isn't this fun mounds of cocaine isn't this exciting and this movie is very bleak and the palette is bleak and the portrait of Boston is bleak and the the framing is bleak and the characters are bleak and I think that the performances themselves are mesmerizing, particularly Johnny Depp's. I think he does an amazing job. It's a performance that's aided by makeup in a really extraordinary way. I mean, as you can see, he does not look like 
Johnny Depp, really. You sort of forget that he's Johnny Depp. I mean, the notion that that kind of contained, like, bullet figure is the, like, sashaying Jack Sparrow somewhere underneath <laughs> there is crazy. Um, and I enjoyed the performances, but the movie itself... Uh, there's like too much story in this movie. There's like not, the movie does not have any ideas animating it. It's just, a, it's like a biopic of this incident in a weird way. And the yeah. performances are good, but the question, I wasn't sure what fundamental question it was exploring or what its answer was. I think that's exactly where I came out in the movie. But let me begin by saying that, that I think a lot of pretty inflated adjectives have attached to Johnny Depp throughout his career. I always find myself agreeing that he's wonderful and unique but finding the adjectives a little too huge for him and not in a bad way he shouldn't have to live up to them i mean i just don't i never regarded him as like the next great methodish actor in that lineage going back to brando he's kind um, of like the manic pixie dream boy he's yeah, a little he doesn't want to be the method brando i mean he's no, he's no, always I, very stylized he, he really that's why he didn't seem right as boulder and why it's surprising that he's so great is that he always plays these flamboyant weirdos from kind of other planets he's so good in this movie and he finally fills out those adjectives like this is a great performance and I you know the ma the makeup could come between some people in the performance it didn't me I mean he looks embalmed frankly I mean he looks kind of weirdly corpse-like and his eyes are lizardly and dead but he's kind of he's both he's so vitally alive and so vitally dead at the same time in this movie it's an, yeah. incre it's an incredible performance yeah. it really is I loved the Southie culture of it and the interiors of the houses, his relationship with his mother, the relationship with Cumberbatch. I thought the, the and I do, I do think it's a beautifully performed movie throughout. Everyone brought their A game. Uh, I thought the problem with the movie was structural and unavoidable and they did their best with it that they could, which is that the gimmick of the movie or the, or the hook of the movie is the degree of complicity of the FBI in allowing this guy to go from a basically a neighborhood thug, I mean, barely, or his reach barely beyond a few square blocks in this one you know, poor section of, of, of Irish Boston to a kingpin, and they, they enabled it, right? That's always been the hook of the Whitey Bulger story. The problem is, there are two, it's triangulated. It's both the fact that his brother was political cover because his brother played by Cumberbatch is actually a hugely powerful uh, a state politician in Massachusetts who's gone totally respectable. Uh, and then the other relationship is with an old childhood friend who's grown up to be a Boston FBI uh, an FBI agent stationed in Boston. Played by Joel Edgerton, wonderfully. He's fantastic in this movie, and as the movie goes, you realize it's almost mostly his story. He's got a very respectable wife who doesn't understand Southie culture. In the most deeply chilling scene in the movie, she's threatened in this lubricious, lubricious weird kind of slant way by Johnny Depp. Um, so one finds oneself not understanding, is this about two brothers, one of whom is straight, one of whom is dirty, or two, two old childhood friends, one of whom wanted to be a kind of hero but turns into a deeply compromised figure in Edgerton, and you don't know who to focus on, and at the end of the day, you just hang it on all three performances, which are wonderful, but you weren't sure what it was but they're about. Like, but it's like a dramatization. I mean, they're wonderful, yeah. but they're wonderful of what? I mean, to me, the emptiest performance in the movie, even though it is sort of a bravura performance, and it's a very weird... I, had a, I, I spent the last couple of days trying to figure out what I think of it, is Joel Edgerton's, because the character who should be at the heart of the story 
is this conflicted guy, right? He's the childhood friend. He feels like if he can land Whitey as an informant, he can advvance his own career. And take down, and it's important, take down the North and, and Italian, mafia. Italian mafia. They were trying to do something that they thought was noble at first, and you follow right. that. Yeah. So he's, he's got aims that are good, and slowly they get corrupted over time through money and the sense of power and the sense of being the right-hand man of this charismatic and compelling guy. But the movie plays it, and it may just be that this was true, as like an unstinting act of protection and loyalty almost from the beginning. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's like very little ambiguity in the writing. And I I think I primarily fault the writing and kind of structure of the way this story is built in the movie rather than the acting direction, um, you know, or or cinematography or anything else. I think just the story wasn't built right Mm -hmm. for this to be a powerful movie. And and there's so there's no... You're, it's not about a man torn between two worlds or a man trying to understand what loyalty means or who to be loyal to or he just he's just like from day one he's like Whitey's guy and so then you just get to watch him be Whitey's mm-hmm. guy over the decades and his suits get more flamboyant and he's you know the antics he has to go to to keep you know keep Whitey protected get more and more theatrical and he gets dirtier and dirtier but you don't have a sense underlying it of how he's feeling about it other than basically fine until mm-hmm. it blows up, which I think it's not a spoiler to say because we all read the news. But in that sense, yeah, I mean, that's that's where a movie like Goodfellas or The Godfather, one of the great gangster movies, sets itself apart, is that, the, is that there's a, a character at the center who truly, um, you know, who truly changes and under, undergoes some kind of enormous transformation, like Michael Corleone in The Godfather. There's nothing like that in this scenario. But that said, the real life, what actually happened between John Connolly, the character, the, the FBI agent that Edgerton plays, and Whitey Bulger is so incredible that it could have been scripted for a movie. I mean, the fact that these two guys that were childhood friends wind up being, you know, in bed together as, as FBI informants over a period of years, unbeknownst to Whitey Bulger's associates, all that stuff was incredible. Mm-hmm. About the tech specs of the movie, I just wanted to say, just to, to recognize um, who, who did some of this, this great stuff that you see on screen, that Roger Deakins, the cinematographer, is, you know, a legendary DP and really does wonders to make to make Boston look just so moody and and the period work is all incredible. Yeah, no, the parts the the individual and the makeup, the makeup should get an Academy Award. I mean, we've seen so many embarrassing makeup jobs, right? Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio as as uh, Jagger Hoover, just like latex masks that are so fakey. And whatever they did, those contact lenses, those light oh, blue yeah. eyes, he just he looks completely un Johnny Depp like and, and incredible. Yeah, the parts are amazing, the sum doesn't transcend them. Uh, can I now burden the discussion with overthought? Yes, <laughs> please. So, I mean, here's the thing about the gangster genre, right? Is that, you know, you know Don Corleone, Pauline Kael argued that the, the, that the saga of the Godfather saga was about the, you know, trajectory of big business in the post-war decades, right? It carries some large metaphorical burden for American life. Similarly, Henry Hill, the yuppieization of the gangster. Tony Soprano, like the amazing thing about The Sopranos was this premise that he was being psychologically destroyed by his own humanity, which rose up and terrified him in the midst of, embedded as it was within all that viciousness, right? And he just didn't know how to deal with the fact that he had, was having an emotional reaction to his own monstrosity. Um, This was so good, but if you don't have that connection to some larger theme, gangster pictures always end in bathos. Right? I mean, that's where they always end up. Like, it all went wrong, and, and you know, and the cuffs, you know, slap the cuffs on, and, and you know, wah, wah, comes the music, and, and you f- don't feel especially enlightened by it, right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I guess I would say I think the story doesn't hang together, not, not even in terms of, like, the geopolitical metaphor for our moment, unless just the blood-curdling, almost supervillain psychopath is somehow representative of our time, which it might be. But I, but I think even, you know, barring the overthought, just the basic thought thought of like, what is the theme of this story? Apart from like, this was a crazy story. Well, let's get some great actors and do it again. Like that to me, that to me was what was missing. And I, but I do, I would be excited if Johnny Depp got an acting nomination for it, just because I think the makeup thing is really unusual. I mean, I think it's almost intentional. You know, people talk about the uncanny valley and when sort of simulacras of humans get so close to looking human that they make you nervous. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it was conscious, but I feel like this movie plays with it. Like the makeup takes him just one notch off of human. Like mm -hmm. it's one notch, like a tiny little dropper of reptilian, but not so much that you feel like he's like an X-Men walking around the streets of Southie. <laughs> X-Man, I guess. Um, and and I, it's, it, I, I just had never seen an effect like that in a film. And it's, it was uncanny and unsettling. And it, I think it had the effect of keeping you as the viewer off your toes by everything he did in the way that you saw him keeping um, oh, on your toes. I love off your toes. <laughs> off your toes, on your heels. I'm so unsettled. I'm, I'm <laughs> mixing my idioms. Um, but in any event, the, it, it did make the performance have the effect on you, the viewer, that you see Bulger having on all of his associates throughout the film. And I thought that was really striking. And, and Death's cool. performance, too. It, it's also just a degree off. He could have played it as a monster. I think some critics said that he did play the character too much as a monster. I thought that he brought a lot of humanity to the character. I mean, he's not sympathetic by any means, but he, he does play him as a human. Yeah. I, I mean, I like don't like it, and yet I would not tell you guys to not see it. That's where I was going to end up. I right? like it more. No, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I like it more than you guys. I think that if you have the slightest interest in what can happen with a gangster movie, can anything new happen? What can Johnny Depp do? I think this movie is worth seeing. It's also worth noting, we haven't talked about the director, but the director, Scott Cooper, it's only his third movie, I believe, and his first movie was Crazy Heart, another movie that I really liked a lot, very different from this, the Jeff Bridges um, country music star movie. Um, but to see him have this kind of scope and make something on this scale with this number of actors and, and have it feel solid, you know, it feels like a solid epic. It doesn't feel like a, a wannabe epic. And that in itself kind of impressed me. Okay, the movie is Black Mass. It stars Johnny Depp and Benedict Cumberbatch and others. Uh, go check it out. Let us know what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, moving on. I'm not sure we've ever gotten like per segment applause before. <laughs> you guys are the best. Yeah, I amazing to think it was that segment that got it. Too, <laughs> I know, and I wasn't fishing. Oh. <laughs> now I'm just milking it. All right, so now we're gonna we're gonna drop the curtain, uh, and we're also going to do our ad. Now yeah. is the moment in our podcast podcast where we talk about our sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Um, we have a great sponsor this week. We actually have a new sponsor this week. Money is one of the last great taboos, something we all need but rarely dare to discuss until now. Open Account, a series of interviews created by Sujin Pak and Umqua Bank, explores our collective uncomfortable silence around money. Honest, emotional, and sometimes comical, Open Account goes deep into the most rewarding, challenging, and paradoxical aspects of the number one leading stressor in America, money. Open Account is available now on iTunes. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. 
Chicago's legendary The Second City has given birth to the careers of such really incredible uh, talents as Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, John Belushi, Stephen Colbert, and Tina Fey. It is truly one of the great Chicago institutions, and its tentacles are felt everywhere in American comedy, if not in the American mind. We are really, truly beyond psyched to be joined by two members of Second City's ETC Theater to perform a sketch called The Bookstore. Lisa Beasley and Scott Moorhead, come on up. Give them a warm welcome. Hi there, welcome to King David's Bookstore. I'm Joshua, let me know if you need anything. Uh Uh-oh, looks like someone's poking around Nebuchadnezzar's nook. (laughs) Stop. Are you Christian? I'm sorry, what? Are you Christian? Uh, yeah, am I wearing it on my forehead today? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I do. No, it's state law. I can ask you if you're Christian, and if you're not, I can ask you to leave. <laughs> oh, but you are, so you're fine. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy that Christianity is built on loving and accepting people for who they are, and then you go and kick them out, kind of ruins the whole basis of what Christianity is about. <laughs> state law, so, nah. So if I said I wasn't a Christian, you would have kicked me out? Yeah, that's right. Have you kicked anybody out today? Oh, well, the law is new. It just came out 36 hours ago. So yeah, 50 people. (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, they were pissed. (laughs) Okay, okay. So what about that whole treat others as you want to be treated thing? Oh, absolutely. Do that. Sure. Okay. uh, uh, What about love your neighbor as you love yourself? Ooh, 10 out of 10. I'm killing it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, What about Romans 12, 18? If possible, live peaceably with all. Aw, that's a new one. (laughs) That's been in the Bible forever. (laughs) I must have a different translation. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, kind of like you have a translation that doesn't exist. (laughs) I'm sorry, I think we're getting off on the wrong page. I know that the law can be confusing, but like with any great law, church, state, keep them separate. And as far as my own personal belief system is concerned, it is the light, the truth, and the way. Mm. Oh, no, 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 no. Jesus is the light, the truth, and the way, not your personal belief system. Mm-hmm. And besides, Jesus hung out with murderers, prostitutes, tax collectors, uh, liars, thieves. Uh, what are you? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Keep them away! <laughs> uh, it just seems like a lot of work to have friends like that. <laughs> besides, how are my own personal beliefs going to stop a murderer from murdering, you know? Well, you're I mean? making me want to kill you right now. So. <laughs> Yes, it does seem like we're two very different Christians. Yeah, kind of like I am and you're not. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not really feeling that good old Christian fellowship with you, so I'd like you to leave. Okay, look, so when I'm feeling stressed out, I like to, you know, pick up the Bible and look at some scriptures here. Mm -hmm. Oh, here, you got one right here. Let's see. Oh, treat others as you want to be treated. Yeah, I thought that was in there. Hey, what are you doing? Let's see, um... Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Yeah, we don't Stop need that ju- either. Uh, well, you're here. definitely buying that yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do not judge lest you be judged. Yeah, we don't need okay, that either. I, I get it. Well, I mean, that's the Bible that you want. You're so quick to throw a scripture in everybody else's face, but you don't know how to be a basic human being. How does that feel? Well, it is a lot lighter. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you.
That was awesome. Thank you. Uh, so why don't we? Uh, why don't you each begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background in comedy and how you arrived uh, at it, and then we can begin poking at the skit and finding out its uh, mechanical innards. Uh, well, I'm Lisa, and I'm from Gary, Indiana. Um, that is not what made me funny. <laughs> Got some uh, fans. Um, I grew up the baby of the family, so in a lot of family roles, that's where the comedian lies. Uh, I guess it's just trying to keep the family happy falls on me. Um, so I've been funny for as long as I can remember, but I didn't really really fall into funny, I would say, until I started performing in Chicago about five years ago. And I was just doing straight acting, but all of the roles I got were comedic roles, like the comedic relief of a serious play. And then I got connected with Second City and then really started to learn how to like hone my point of view and write and be funny on purpose, which is far more, like it's very scary to be funny on purpose as opposed to just being funny naturally in real life, so. Um, and uh, Scott? Uh, I'm originally from Iowa, you know, the funniest state in the union. Um, this has got to be the first time that Gary, Indiana, and Iowa got shout outs. That's incredible. Go all guys. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm from Iowa. When I was 16, um, my, uh, like, the drama troupe uh, took a trip to Chicago, and I saw the Second City show, uh, The Psychopath Not Taken, um, which is a great, it's an excellent, excellent show, uh, but wildly inappropriate for a 16-year-old to see. Um, and sort of my own personal backstory is, I, I, for whatever reasons, I was, I was really angry um, uh, growing up, and, uh, and I really didn't have an outlet for that. And so I watched this show that is filthy. Um, and, and, and inappropriate, uh, certainly for my age, but even from a societal standpoint at, at that moment in time. But it was saying all of these really incredible things that I had just never seen before. And uh, in, in a truly, I'm not going to repeat what the bit is, but it is a like perfect bit, but also super tasteless bit that occurs in the show. And my, I, I'm laughing so hard, and I turn and look at my drama teacher who's there, and she is la she's laughing so hard that she's crying, and then she sees me see her, and she just shrugs, <laughs> and then goes back to watching the show. And I was like, oh my God, there's so much power here. Um, so I took all of my, the, sort of my anger and filtered it through, that's where I first learned to sort of filter it into comedy, um, mm -hmm. was at seeing that totally inappropriate show. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I think Mark Maron has become justly, he's gone from well-known and well-respected to very famous by virtue of interviewing people in the comedy world along some of the lines that you just spoke, right? Like what your personal experience was, what, where the angst was, the self-loathing, and what kind of cathartic relationship one has or emotional cathartic relationship one has to being a comedian. What really interests me, uh, especially about what we saw at Second City last night and what you did here, was the other side of it, which is the, the, the completely conscious technique side of comedy. And I would love to hear how you generated this skit. Did you do it? Do you engineer laughs, reverse engineer laughs, discover them? Do they surprise you as much as they surprise us when we see the final uh, product? I'd just love to hear about kind of your method. 
Um, I'll say the, the first things, especially since we're talking about it from a mechanical standpoint, we call it a sketch here. <laughs> what? What, did I, what did I call it? A skit. Oh, a skit. Yes. Oh. Yeah. A skit is very kind of eighth grade talent show, it right? Is. <laughs> it is. All right, skit, it skit is. withdrawn. Yeah. Expunged. So. Yeah. There's just something natural that happens to us every time you say a skit. I was like, <laughs> no, it's no, it's like it's when I write some kind of like deeply considered, you know, essay, and someone was like, oh yeah, that was a really good article. It's like it wasn't a fucking article. It was a fucking essay. It reaches all the way back to Montaigne. Anyway. Proceed. A sketch. <laughs> yes, a sketch. Um, so, yeah, we go through uh, what we call uh, at Second City the process, and the process uh, refers to the process by which we create a show. Um, and at Second City, sort of the, our bread and butter is we create our scenes uh, through improvisation, and even if a scene is written, we'll go back and work a scene through improvisation. Uh, so maybe whole sections of a written piece might not be, we'll say, working for um, sort of a blanket term. Then we'll cut that out and say, okay, you know the part where the whale comes in all the way to the part where we start talking about the moon? Come up with something else. Mm-hmm. And then you have to figure that out. Um, so that's sort of the crash course in understanding like what we're doing in process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this scene came, so process is also for a specific amount of time. So it's not like, until you figure it out. It's like, you got 12 weeks to write a show, get it done. Mm-hmm. So this scene came late into the process because there are many different ways to come up with a sketch. Uh, It could be through improvisation, or you can come in and say, hey, I wrote this, everybody read it. Or it can be an idea where it's like, I I think I'm feeling this way about the world. Somebody help me find a way to make this funny. With this particular sketch, it was more of an assignment, because sometimes the director can see what elements would best serve this show. Mm -hmm. And as to say, I feel like we're missing something with this point of view. You two, you guys work great together. Come up with something. So we improvised it in front of a live audience twice? Yeah, this scene was improvised once, and then we went back and cut some things out and did it again, and then so the scene you saw, that was that scene. Okay, but wait, so when you say it was improvised, but you also say a director had a notion for a type of thing that that the review you guys were putting together needed. So was that like, we'd love to do something that touches on politics around kind of these gay marriage laws that are in the news, but it could be anything? Or was it like, we need a bookstore sketch, we don't have enough retail (laughs) sketches in this show? (laughs) Or, and then, and then once, you know, I'd be curious to hear what that parameter was. And then when you say you improvised it the first time, you know, having been to see improv shows occasionally, it feels like they're, they come out on stage and they're like, give us the words. Like, did you do that part of improv? Like, get a little more granular, I guess. Is yeah, my, we my had answer. to build the whole world f- from nothing. Uh, with, with in mind, we, we want something to tackle like this new law that just came out. Yeah. And then that's all we have. So then we start and somehow we painted this picture that we're in a bookstore and he's the bookstore owner and I'm the customer. Yeah, I can't, I can't remember. We definitely um, had an idea that we would be 
tackling specifically that law that was passed in Indiana. Um, but we, that was it. We were like, that's the subject matter sort of lightly that we'll figure out. We'll, we'll have a conversation somehow about that on stage. And we did take a suggestion of something and it's something that's in that scene right now, but I have no idea what it was. I can't remember what it was. So as you guys kind of figured it out and helped it find its rhythm, I'm curious, how much does it differ night to night in terms of what you say or which parts of it get laughs or... Or what a tiny amount of stage space you have. <laughs> Comfortably holding microphones in your hands. Uh, that's a great question because we have noticed a very specific pattern. Uh, we do know that when we first introduced the scene to our Chicago stage, that law was like fresh off the press. It was like hot news. Yeah. So it hit off a of recognition. And so it is good to know that five months later, it still hits because it's funny. Because here are these two conflicting people in this world. But there are certain patterns where the audience hates him on certain nights. Mm. And they're rooting for me. And then there are parts of the audience that understands that he's hateable, which makes, I don't know if that makes sense or not. They understand that he's more hateable, so it's like not, it doesn't hit as much because they're like, oh, we get it, he's the bad guy. <laughs> so, so my lines are not revealed as funny. It's like, oh, well, you should feel that way, girl. So, yeah. <laughs> well, what I find funny about the way that you describe that is that you think that you're the good guy in the scene. <laughs> um, and I see it from just a slightly different standpoint. Um, one of the uh, sort of the things that intrigued, uh, I think, both of us about this is that specifically that the characters are both Christian because that allowed us to sort of have an internal dialogue about um, maybe types of people that may or may not exist within that uh, frame. That wasn't like super important to us, but I think that allowed us to have a conversation, yeah. uh, which was really, really nice. The place that I feel like the scene didn't get to, but it has all the markings to get to, and this is like part of, we're two weeks away from opening, so the scene gets its two shots, and then it's in the books, and then we don't touch it anymore. It doesn't change. We can't mess around with it no matter how much you want to change things. So I feel like the scene is very, very close to not having a hero or a villain because they're both understandable sides. They're very, very close to being both understandable. And to me, the crux of the scene is about a hypocrisy that exists within certain people. Yeah. And I we're agree. close to that. That's not what the scene's about, but we're so close yeah. to it. That was really important to me to have two characters with similar backgrounds in a scene because in that way you eliminate the need for more backstory for the audience and for and to put one of the characters in a position to learn and the other in a position to teach. Do you have like favorite lines or like a favorite moment within it or a thing that you particularly relish if it goes off or it gets a laugh? No, we hate it. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think. While you're thinking, I do definitely have a favorite line uh, because of the way that the audience sometimes reacts to it, which is the line, uh, church, state, keep them separate. Um, I like that line because it is not just funny. It's like something that I think is important. <laughs> um, but sometimes people don't understand the line. 
And that makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> when, that, when I can clearly see in the audience that they're like, what does that mean? And I'm like, oh, cool, you're the problem. <laughs> I do remember my uh, favorite moment. So where I start listing off all of the people that Jesus hang out with, I say like, <laughs> you know, Jesus hung out with murderers, prostitutes, da 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 So my dad... I'm so glad he don't listen to podcasts. Uh, <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> he used to have this thing every time we left the house for a road trip. He would say uh, that he hopes that the house is safe from all murderers, rapists, muggers, fools, terrorists, idiots. <laughs> And one day I accidentally said, Jesus hung out with murderers, rapists, stuff like <laughs> And then it, it was funny because I hadn't thought about that in so long. And then I was thinking, well, Dad, if we're all gone from our house, what difference does it make if a rapist is there? <laughs> unassailable unassailable logic is your dad gonna see this sketch at some point uh yeah he came to friends and family uh <laughs> i don't know if he knew what was going on um but yeah my parents did come see the show they come to see all of my shows and they say they like all of them so i'll never know the truth <laughs> i have a, a broader question about sketch comedy for you guys and, and I guess improv would be thrown in this too everything that Second City does we went to the show last night the best of Second City Monday night show and saw a bunch of sketches that I think have been around for a while and have toured the country with various people in them and stuff and I mean just the the kind of what amazed me about the the I guess five people we saw last night was what all-around show business troopers they were. They could all sing. They could sing in harmony. You know, they could dance. They could do different voices and accents. And it just struck me, if you're a performer and you're interested in performing, a young performer, like it sounds like you guys were starting out in more serious acting, what kind of thing makes you a sketch person, as a, a sketch and improv person, as opposed to straight dramatic acting, stand-up comedy, other things you could do with those gifts? Well, one, it's, it's a lot. One, one of the small things is just being able to adapt to a scene so quickly because when you do um, a quote-unquote regular production, you have maybe six weeks of rehearsal, eight, out, eight hours a day, six days a week, whereas with sketch, you learn it and you perform it that day, and it's only two minutes, and then the lights go dark and then the lights come back up and you're a totally different character in person. So it's just about being able to adapt quickly and then soon you get used you get used to it moving so fast. So you don't have time to sit and delve into characters. That's why when you see the lights pop up on a scene, these people already know who they are, they already know where they are, they already know what they're doing sometimes. And <laughs> and you just have to adapt quickly. I would say that the reason why I personally was drawn to sketch versus, um, say, straight acting, uh, as you put it, or musical theater or dance or anything in particular, is because the art form lead, lends itself to being a weapon uh, for messages. Um, and so, uh, sort of going back to your question, all of those skills, being able to sing and dance and play an instrument and everything in sketch, and this is my own personal viewpoint, you take all those things and you use them as weapons to 
get your message to an audience. Um, so if you have a particular, for example, if you have a particularly uh, hard subject for somebody to swallow, I, I would bet nine times out of 10, if, if that thing really like had legs to stand on, it could be a song because people are like, they're singing, yay. <laughs> I don't care what it's about um, at its worst and at its best it's like wow that was really uh, a brilliant medium by which to you know talk about uh, you know Planned Parenthood funding where it's like ooh that's kind of hard to hear it's like not when I'm strumming my acoustic guitar <laughs> I said guitar by the way <laughs> yeah and I those are my favorite moments when I see the audience realizes what's happening to them yeah Mm -hmm. It's it's like they're they're caught up in the talent of what someone is doing, and then all of a sudden there's a line, there's a twist, or there's a something where it's like gotcha, and it's like, <laughs> yeah. and they're like, oh, that's what they just did to me, mm -hmm. and I think they like it. <laughs> so it requires a little sadism along with all those other gifts. <laughs> All right, well, uh, I have one last question. Uh, um, I, uh, I was blown away last night. I was blown away by you guys today. Uh, the talent level is so, it's, it really is watching people fly on the trapeze without a net or play tennis with a really high net. Pick your net <laughs> metaphor. But there's always a net. But there's always either a net or an absent net. But, um, uh, but what it made me think also was that do you resent it when people want comedians to be kind of the romantic id energy geniuses? Like Belushi would be a good example of someone, or Chevy Chase who seemed to spend an entire career pretending as though he had no technique and no training and maybe didn't. Um, whereas <laughs> it seemed to me that it's become a highly refined, very technical, uh, in addition to requiring like angst and an acute sensibility and an ability to fly in the trapeze, it was actual hard fucking work to master the technique so much that it then became kind of native to what you were doing and invisible. Which, 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 which would you prefer? Would you like to be thought of as like the mad genius or as someone who's, you know, who really learned a craft? If I think I understand what you're <laughs> <laughs> um, some, Sometimes you can find a... <laughs> sometimes you can find a sketch performer who probably seems effortless and probably, or probably seems like they don't look like they know what they're doing and a bit frazzled. And I would speak for myself and say that's because I don't know what I'm doing and I am frazzled. Because sometimes we get materials so quick and, and especially if it's a whole runner of a show, you don't know what you don't know what's coming next. Yeah. So if you, were, if, you were to, if you were to see us in the black when the lights go out on us, it is pure chaos. So then when the lights come back up, we're in this, it's just this, diff, it's a different energy when you're moving moment to moment in the moment. And I think that does have something to do with whether or not a performer looks polished or mad geniusy. I do know, um, I think I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's something that's up to, I don't know, the person who's labeling whether or not 
someone is this type of sketch performer or this type of sketch performer. Um, I don't know if I answered anything. I think what you just did is known as a full Metcalf. <laughs> <laughs> I, I lured you into it, I'm sorry. Um, I, I think that I, my preference would be someone who has, been, has dipped themselves head to toe in technique and has spent a lot of time then not looking like they're not doing very much. Um, and I appreciate when I perform with people like that. I think that um, it's also, again, it's another one of a, web, a weapon to use against the audience because they're like, oh, look at this guy. He, he didn't even look like he's supposed to be up here. And that's a way, if you know that, that the audience sees you in that way, that's just another way that you can find a way in. It's like they don't expect anything from me. And as a result, I can hit them from anywhere. <laughs> Whereas when you see somebody who's sort of like, as you put it, the mad scientist, that big energy, a whirling dervish, it's like, that guy's funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that guy has to be funny all the time. Yeah. That's so hard. That's why they all die at 33. <laughs> so it's a lot of pressure to be, yeah. to be the whirling dervish. To get it all but it's a lot of 34. work to be the precise uh, technical performer. And yeah, who that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> I mean, however you got there, technique or, technique or mad genius, you guys are amazing. We're floored by what you do. Lisa Beasley, Scott Moorhead, thank you so much for coming up here and talking about your character. That was so fun. That was amazing. We've never had a live performance of something during one of our shows, have we, now that I think of it, no? In included within that judgment is the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> we've, never, we've never cleared that bar. Our live performances have never been live performances, it's true. All right, um, should we continue on to segment three? Are we, any yeah, other business? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Donald Trump is a disordered, bullying, aggrandizing fool. He's also the Republican frontrunner for president. Whiskey, tango, foxtrot. Surely a lubricious casino owner who has had his own reality TV show taking over one of the two major political parties is more than a political story. It is, and certainly is being felt as, a story about the culture at large. However, this topic, Julia Turner, as we've discussed many times over the last day or two, comes with its perils. There is no unified field theory of Donald Trump, nor can there be. He contains multitudes of competing emptinesses. Is he Howard Dean? Is he Ross Perot? Is he Huey Long? Is he Hulk Hogan? Or is he Mussolini? <laughs> Every single one of those comparisons has been seriously hazarded. Uh, it's been said that he's destroying our democra democracy, and recently by Frank Rich in New York Magazine, it's been said that he's saving it. Uh, I think Rich's thesis is the most provocative one yet, so let me quote from it. He writes, by calling attention to that sorry state of affairs 24-7 of our political discourse and our political parties, Trump's impersonation of a crypto-fascist clown is delivering the most persuasively bipartisan message of 2016. Julia, rescue me from this introduction, please. <laughs> Bail me out. Talk to me about uh, Donald Trump. Well, I think there's an argument for talking about Donald Trump, not just as a political figure, but as a cultural figure, because in a way, he's a cultural crossover. And I think part of what's tricky in trying to understand the 
the for a while sleeper phenomenon of Donald Trump, which I, like many media observers and coastal elites and whatever the hell else you want to call us, uh, thought like, oh, yeah, yeah, spike in the polls in the middle of the summer, but it'll all die down. Like, there, there, don't worry your head about Donald Trump. This will go away. And then, like a bad case of something, it has not gone away. Uh, and, and somehow Labor Day has passed, and there's been two debates, and we're all still reckoning with him. And I think one of the, the things I've struggled with is what is the narrative we're trying to understand? Is he a businessman is he the outsider candidate who's a businessman he's like he's a successful businessman he's made these deals and he's made this money and he's going to bring his business experience to government which is a thing that people say sometimes that they're going to do um but it's been clear that he's it has never seemed it has not seemed for decades like donald trump is primarily a businessman because he seems much more interested in performing the character of donald trump and his trumpiness and and uh, having his own brand be his primary business, um, that that feels like, like he's not Mitt Romney, right? You wouldn't really file him with Mitt Romney in sort of types of candidates for for government. And then the other side is okay, so he's a he's a cultural figure, right? And what sort of cultural figure is he? Uh, Josh Voorhees, who writes about politics for us at Slate, made an interesting observation the other day that you know with these kind of cultural crossover candidates, you've gotten for the ones who've been successful, each one has represented the kind of cultural mode of of the generation just before. So you had Ronald Reagan was sort of a classic Hollywood uh, screen star, you know, seemed improbable and then entered government. You had Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was kind of like the Titanic, you know, 80s muscle man, seeming implausible and then being the governor of California. Uh, you have like a wrestler in Jesse Ventura meeting with political success. And in Donald Trump, who seems utterly implausible, right? But what do you have? You have a reality television star. You have someone who's, you know, the primary medium, the ascendant medium of probably the previous decade is now suddenly talking in rhythms that we find familiar and that we know how to parse. And I think part of his success has to do with the way he's shaking up the political cycle, but I do think part of it has to do with his the cultural capital that he's built. And, and if you look at him through that lens, you begin to understand why people are liking him. I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) And clearly, if, I mean, name recognition is, you know, kind of the initial hurdle over which this, you know, uh, a plethora of candidates, you know, it's it's the initial sieve through which they need to pass in order to enter the ranks of the three or four front front runners. I mean, the guy has essentially spent 35 years in American life placing his name as ubiquitously as possible. I read an amazing statistic, I think courtesy of Vox, and I think it's true, which is that if you had simply taken the amount of money that Donald Trump inherited in, I believe, 1976 from his enormously successful real estate developer father and placed it in an entirely algorithmic Vanguard 500 fund, index fund, you would be richer than Donald Trump. (laughs) So what you can do, Chicago economists, right, is there's an opportunity cost between, you know, a totally standard low-risk investment and wanting to have your name be ubiquitous in American life. I mean, that's literally the price. You can put a price on what he paid to have America be basically a giant lawn with political lawn signs saying Trump all over it. And now he's trying to cash it in. Yes, it's true he comes via reality TV, but as a political candidate, isn't what he really leveraging uh, is his 
birther, insistence on uh, Obama not being born in America and and his ability to insinuate that Obama is, is possibly a Muslim, and uh, his anti-vaxxing, uh, and his climate denial. In other words, he is taking the dog whistle and turning it into a whistle. So it's not only that he's got this outsized, buffoonish kind of professional wrestler, reality TV show personality that sort of plays well with some part of the American electorate. It also has to do with beliefs, specific political beliefs, that the Republican Party has been good at kind of stimulating just enough for primary season and then making disappear for the general. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely in the same way that he takes his own name and burnishes it in gold and plastered it up in a size that you can't ignore. He is now doing that with, like, many of the darker undercurrents of the Republican Party. The one you missed off your list, which was sort of the kickoff to the opprobrium, was his um, discussion of Mexican immigrants and immigrants generally, yeah, which is the other yeah. the other one that's been big. But, I mean, we you know, so we, we took the architecture boat tour of Chicago earlier today. Um and literally the first thing we could see, the, the building you see when you start is the new Trump Tower, which only went up in 2009 here in Chicago. And there was literally, I've never seen this before, but you know how you see like a window washer hanging on the window sometimes and cleaning the windows of a building. There was a similar rig on this building, but it was just polishing the letters of the sign. <laughs> <laughs> it was just it just seemed like a perfect metaphor for something um, but it, but in the same way that he's you know th- that he plasters his name it, like everything is loud and everything is all caps with him including you know what a lot of GOP voters actually think about Mexicans among other topics but th- to me one thing that was interesting so in, in preparation for this segment I went back and watched several episodes of Celebrity Apprentice <laughs> something I had not watched before. And it was really striking to see his reality TV persona because it is related to his candidate persona, but distinct. Because on The Apprentice, the, the, the kind of trash talkers and the people who get in fights and pull each other's hair and steal each other's phones and send fake tweets and call each other dirty tricks... Uh, this, I only watched like three episodes. It was very eventful. <laughs> Geraldo stripped down to his skivvies. There was like so much, so much action. Anyway, the people who are crazy on the show are not Donald Trump. And Donald Trump plays this kind of boardroom wisdom figure who, who has to talk people through their conclusion. And any reality show has this, you know, there's that weird moment at the end where they like impose logic across whatever edit they've done of a week's worth of footage and then the logic has to result in the judgment that you're fired or the pack up your scissors and go or whatever the hell. Um, and so there's this like simulacrum of reason that is the finale of any reality sh- TV show and he's like the dispenser of the reasoned verdict in the show, which surprised me because you think, you know, he's he's sort of the like real talker on the political stage, but he's he's kind of like an arbitrator and a negotiator. He's like helping he's you know, he does a lot of there was a lot more you're fired followed by you're a great person, you did a great job, you're fired. Like he's he's very warm. It's it's yeah. a different Trump than the Trump we've seen on stage or the Trump I had assumed was the figure on the show. Okay, well this gets a, a- absolutely key question that the rich quote that I led off with indicates as well. He says that he's essentially imitating, like it is a fully self-conscious, you know, developed performance uh, a la Bullworth of a, you know, a wildly exaggerated crazy man who's breaking all the preposterous codes of uh, silence of American politics 
can you impute that level of self-awareness he to says Donald that Trump? he identifies himself you're saying as an entertainer I'm saying Frank Rich's argument is hinges on oh, this Rich, distinction right. that that Donald Trump is aware of himself as a performer and has identified the China in the China shop of American politics he believes it should be smashed and he's smashing it and you, the one thing you can say about Trump and absolutely you cannot take this away from him is very Healy Long is that there is left populism in some of what he's saying in addition to really vacuous lowbrow right populism nativism and racism let's just call it what it is in addition to that there's the hedge funders you know are getting away with murder at their taxation the rich you know he's just come out in favor of progressive taxation the crazy socialist belief that we've all lived with for a hundred years in this country and across the industrialized west he's not politically very simple to a pigeonhole. Do you impute a degree of self-consciousness to Donald Trump's <laughs> Well, I mean, that's that just seems like a trick question because there isn't anybody on that Republican debate stage who isn't incredibly self-conscious about the self that they're producing and themselves as an entertainer and a performer, etc. The question would be what sets his degree of self-consciousness as a performer apart from everyone else's and what makes his so much more appealing to this, you know, this large swath of the electorate. And I honestly don't know. I mean, when we decided to do this as a topic, I just felt like Donald Trump really is, I mean, this is really just me admitting my hand-wringing liberal bona fides, but he is someone that I just choose to ignore completely, you know? And, and I, think, I think there is an argument to be made, and, and Dahlia Lithwick, the, our, one of our wonderful Slate writers, made this argument in Slate, or, or talked about this question, rather. I don't think she was quite arguing on either side, but she was talking about whether it's simply the case that if we ignore figures like Donald Trump, or maybe it would have been Sarah Palin in the last election, or after the the election when she kept popping up in different guises. If we kind of ignore these self-made demagogues, will they just go away? Or are we, on the other hand, giving them the stage, right? I mean, are we, are we taking away our own voices by saying, oh, that I, I'm going to be take the high ground and not, not even go there? Of course, now we don't really have that luxury because he is, in fact, the Republican front runner. But in addition to which, it's your snooty disregard that has turned him into a right-wing superhero. Dana's particularly? Yes. <laughs> well, but I don't understand. Why is blanket media coverage of him turning him into less of a right-wing superhero? Well, they're both contributing to it. But <laughs> no, but there is a sense in which implied in Donald Trump's act is this plurality of the Republican Party is behind him because he is supposedly breaking the um, dictates of political correctness. And he clearly has picked up on this because he explicitly cites political correctness as the principal thing that he appears to be running against. And implied in that is that certain canons of decorum and comportment have you know, begun to seem oppressive to this part of the electorate and just simply bursting out of them. Well, that's, that's the second half of what I was going to say. Go ahead, finish your So point. it's and, and implied in that as well as this rebuke to the snob or the elitist who obeys these norms of rational discourse, right, or norms of just basic public decency. These, according to a significant minority of this country, are now somehow oppressive codes of silence that need to be uh, challenged. Hence, your sort of, you know, our, all of our elitist disdain for him is actually the source of an enormous amount of his power. I guess, yeah, I guess that would be true. I mean, if, if it were the case that 
he was taken more seriously, whatever that would mean, if he was taken more seriously somehow by the, the media, the establishment, would that take away from his power? I don't know. It seems to me that his power exists independently at this point of how he's seen, portrayed, you know, covered by the media. He's just become his own kind of monster. And I think it, it has to do with precisely what you were just trying to articulate, that he, he gives voice to this, this ugliness that... It, while it may be at the core of a lot of these issues, especially the immigrant stuff and the birtherism and the stuff he says about women, that um, you know that it's it, it tends to be, it's it's not being repudiated by the other candidates on stage, right? Mm-hmm. They're saying the same things most of the time in more, in more coded ways, and he's just he's just this kind of he's like the letters on the building. He's just this gilded phallus that just like puts it right out there, you know. <laughs> I mean, he is so. When I was doing some of the research about him today, that was the image that came into my mind. That he is just like some kind of really gross, like he, he's just this kind President of embodiment. New York dickhead. Please. <laughs> yeah, he's a gilded phallus. I mean, he's some kind of embodiment of just kind of power, wealth, right? Which he unapologetically claims. I'm really rich. He's always saying that in every single debate. I can fund my own. I don't need to have donors because I'm really, really rich. And I was trying to think, who is his? Frank Rich was going through all these figures too, you know, various Mark Twain characters and Huey Long, like who, who were his antecedents in American culture? And I can't really think of one on the political stage. I mean, we need John Dickerson or somebody who knows, has all of political, American political history in his head. But I was thinking maybe of P.T. Barnum. P.T. Barnum, yeah. And then I started to do some research on P.T. Barnum, and P.T. Barnum is a way more legitimate civic public figure <laughs> than Donald Trump is. <laughs> I mean, just historically, like he was a politician. He served in the Connecticut state legislature and he was a mayor of a city, I think Bridgeport, Connecticut. He, in addition to being this showman and this entrepreneur and somebody who brought Jumbo the Elephant across the country, was was somebody who was engaged in public life in some way. And that, I think, is one of the things that most repulses me about this moment, this Donald Trump moment, is that when he was doing that birther shit a few years ago, when he was popping up with Orly Tate and all that crazy stuff, he was nobody. You could, you could laugh at him because he had no power. He had never held any political office. He was just sort of a scion of wealth and a failed entrepreneur and a golf course builder, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the idea that he's now claiming the right to stand on any kind of stage with anyone, however little respect I may have for them, who have in some way been elected to public office and tried to serve their state, their country, their city in some way, it just, it, it repulses me. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I, I wish... I wish that I had a reading. I wish that I had some kind of smart reading of who Donald Trump is or what, what he means. But there is a part of me that just when he's on TV, I have to turn away. I didn't watch that second debate. I watched the first one. But right now about the whole Republican field, I just sort of feel like, wake me when it's over and there's a candidate because I cannot look at these people anymore. Um, his superpowers have been augmented by a power of five in the last two minutes, I think. <laughs> um, one thing I want to say about him, though, and I, th- I think... I'm going to float a theory, and I'm not sure I stand behind it, but I think one of the modes of speech that he employs that is part of his power is something that actually other candidates could take a lesson from. And we had a post pointing this out on Slate a couple weeks ago, and it actually features in the in the Rich piece as well. But he, I think this may come from the reality TV training, but what is reality TV, right? It's like... If you spend time in the production of a reality TV show, you have a, a, what you are doing is looking at humans talking, lamenting, being incredibly sad at how boring so much of what they say is, right? It's like a gigantic 
boring, like expunging process. You know, so you take all of the parts of life that are boring and that are normal, that are basic, that are not going to like make the pulse quicken, and you scrub that out, and you leave in only people stealing each other's phones and calling each other dirty tricks and pulling each other's hair and stripping down to their skivvies, uh, and saying exciting things about all of those things, and not just exciting. Like emotionally fraught things, direct things. Like in some ways, and I, I recognize that Donald Trump was not like in the editing booth on this show, but he has been involved and been in this, that stupid boardroom for 14 seasons of this fucking thing. And he, like, he has a knack for saying things that feel direct and striking and interesting that the other candidates don't have. And I, I did watch all three hours of that debate last week, and it was. A mess. I mean, one thing that was amazing about it was how much worse the CNN debate was than the Fox debate. It was the CNN debate. Actually, its moderation seemed a lot like the way Trump runs the boardroom at the end of these Celebrity Apprentice episodes. You guys, that's my only. I'm only going to talk about that from now on. That's like my only. I'm I'm just down the rabbit hole. Um, but what the what he does in those boardroom scenes is just like pit people against each other. He just does a round robin where he's like, Lisa, do you think you or Geraldo should get fired? Geraldo. Would you fire Lisa? I, it's like Ian Ziering or somebody like that. Um, you know, Ian, would you fire Geraldo or, L- L- you know, like he's he just pits and it was the exact, like literally that CNN was like, great, Trump playbook, like, you know, Walker, so-and-so has said such and such about you. What do you say? Um, so anyway, it was a terrible debate, but in it, you, and it was not as good a performance for Trump as some of his earlier ones, but you just, you, you see these, the like machinery of American politics, like these boring bromides that people say they're so hemmed in, they feel like they have to be so safe, like nobody knows how to be interesting anymore. And so nobody cares about politics, nobody's engaged with it, and they're not paying attention in the debates, nobody watches the debates, and, and he's like taken some of the showmanship of this debased medium and... Maybe that's just how he is, and that's why he ended up with a reality show in the first place, and I'm giving his reality show boot camp too much credit for his current political success, but I feel like there's something there. Yeah, I don't know. To me, I don't know. That's giving him a lot of credit. Frank, Frank Rich kind of does that in that. It's very interesting. It's completely worth reading, but his argument that Trump, Trump is shaking things up, and he's exposing the emptiness at the heart of the political debacle, I mean, I, I guess I see the point of it, but what's he offering you know, what's he holding up? You know, I mean, I just, I keep thinking of this line, something that he said about healthcare. I think it was in one of the debates or maybe it was an interview and somebody said, what do you think of Obamacare? What would you do to change the healthcare system? He said, I would get rid of Obamacare and replace it with something terrific. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea that there's a segment of the populace that's saying like, he's got my vote, something terrific. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to negotiate a better deal with Mother Nature. <laughs> uh, the truth is, I, I once spoke to Donald Trump on the phone. Um, I was doing a story. Was it a gold phone? <laughs> <laughs> Oddly penile in shape. <laughs> um, uh, no, and it was hilarious. And it was everything that we've been doing. It was about 12, 13 years ago. I was doing a story on uh, Isaiah Thomas having just been hired as the uh, general manager of the New York Knicks. And I was like, oh, I'm going to call like the really iconic New York Knicks super fans. So I talked to Spike Lee, which was, was in person, which was kind of amazing. Uh, and, uh, and, then, um, and then talked to Trump on the phone. And I had put in a call, and I thought I had you know, a 20% chance the guy's going to call me back, and the phone rings, and I'm like in the middle of a heroic mid-afternoon nap. <laughs> and I groggily get on the phone, and he's like, Steve! And it was right away you were within this kind of warm embrace of heightened reality and you know, health fellow well-met. 
vibes. Like it just, there was something kind of powerful about it, but utterly incoherent. It was, <laughs> it was sort of the whole thing. He was, he, he, he said, he said, I think it's wonderful that Isaiah is, the energy level of the, the team is just going to be, and of course within 18 months, Isaiah had destroyed the team. Um, <laughs> But the other thing he did is, at one point in the conversation on the Knicks kind of died down, because I don't think he's that interested in the team, frankly. He goes to every game, and he doesn't look at the court. He spends the entire time bloviating at the person sitting to his left. Um, and there's evidence for this, because he, he, at one point he said, Steve, what, whatever happened to that guy on the Knicks, that fellow, the tall fellow? <laughs> and I said, Marcus Camby? That one, that's him. And uh, I said, they traded him to Toronto three years ago. And there was this long silence on the other end of the phone. But uh, anyway, that was my Donald Trump story. (laughs) There you go. All right. uh, Well, come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Tell us what you think of the Donald Trump candidacy. How many people here think that he's actually going to um, win the nomination? I would call that a light smattering. That's a really light <laughs> smattering. Wow. I mean, insofar, in, insofar as he's splitting the Republican vote and creating a greater chance for Hillary to do well in the fall, maybe, maybe it's okay. That was a slightly less light <laughs> smattering. <laughs> it's a Fiorina crowd. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Dane. No, 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 no. What do you have? Okay, so um, I have. Can I do two? Can I be a Stephen and do two? <laughs> so I felt like I should have at least one endorsement that's related to our show tonight. Um, something about Chicago. Something about the Music Box Theater, the wonderful 1929 movie theater that we're sitting in right now. And. Um, so I, I just nosed around a bit online, and I found this great site called cinematreasures.org, which is a guide to movie theaters around the world, specifically you know, these kind of old vintage movie theaters, some of which are closed, some of which are being refurbished, but really just sort of venues in which you can see movies all over the world. And I think there's something like, I don't know, 27 different countries or something on this, on this site. And, uh, and there's a regular blog where they update you know, with posts about, about theaters. And, and just recently, I think the most recent post is about a theater that's not far from here. I thought you all might know. The Arcadia Theater in St. Charles, Illinois. Does anybody know it? Yeah. No? Yeah? <laughs> so that was a, a 1926 theater from around the same era as, this, as the Music Box, 1929. And, uh, and they've just got great slideshows and kind of histories of the, the refurbishment and stuff. So cinematreasures.org, if you want to go look at, at old movie theaters online. And, uh, and my other endorsement is related actually to John Dickerson's endorsement on the, uh, the political gab fest a couple weeks ago. If you are at all a um, paleontology, archaeology nerd, you know about the Homo Naledi discovery, right? Yeah, clap if you've heard of it. So um, this was the, the cave that was unearthed in, in Africa. I don't know when this, the actual unearthing was, but it's the news about it sort of broke a couple weeks ago. And it's basically the most exciting early man find that's, that's happened in, I don't know, maybe the history of, of paleoarchaeology. And um, or am I, is that the right field? I don't know, paleoarchaeology, right? Digging up bones. And it's, I think, 18 individuals <laughs> from a species that have not, has not ever been seen before that may be the missing link in between. Me and Ditka. Yeah, basically. Australopithecus and and the homo species, i.e. Steve and Mike Ditka. (laughs) (laughs) 
we won't say who's on what side. Um, so, so there were all there was a whole burst of newspaper stories about Homo naledi and tons of you know National Geographic kind of you know website explanations of it. But I had not yet seen a really comprehensive dig into this dig until um, until the PBS Nova episode last week about it. So that's my other endorsement for the week. I think it's already done airing on TV, although you can check with your, your local stations. But it's available online. It's called The Dawn of Humanity, and it's a two-hour special specifically about the uh, the, the archaeologist, I'm, I'm sure I'm giving him the wrong name, I don't know what he is, a paleo something, the scientist <laughs> who ran this dig, and, uh, and it's really, really incredible. So he sent, out, um, he sent out word on Facebook looking for a lot of skinny scientists. He wanted highly qualified and very small people who could fit through this really narrow tunnel and go down and, and, and dig their way to the bones, because he knew that it, even though it was his site, he was never going to make it down through that tunnel. It's something like, you know, 17, seven, I don't know, seven inches wide? Is that possible? Could any human get through that? And, and so all these women answered, and the entire team was women, and my nine-year-old daughter loved this. She watched the, the Nova PBS special with me, and it was just all these tiny scientist women from all over the world <laughs> who, um, who put on helmets with lights and dug their way down into the tunnel and then brought up this incredible find, this trove of bones that's going to completely change the way we understand the evolution of humanity. So um, anything you can get your hands on about Homo naledi is fascinating, but the Nova PBS documentary Dawn of Humanity is especially endorsed. Glorious. Julia? So journalists are trained to spot trends when they see three of this, a similar thing, but sometimes you spot a trend and it is of no consequence whatsoever, and there's no purpose in telling anyone about it, but I'm going to tell you. <laughs> um, so there's a trend of comedy sketches that are, rely on the musical style of Les Mis, and there was a brief snip in the... Um, in the uh, Second City show that we saw last night, there's a, there's a sketch that appeared in the review we saw that has a, a Les Mis singing routine uh, and, and a, a funny wordplay kicker, which I will not reveal here. Very funny sketch. Uh, there was a Les Mis-ish moment in one of the sketches that Andy Samberg led as he, um, as he hosted the Emmys this past weekend. It was very fine. You know, people dressed up like, uh, you know, French revolutionaries. Um, but the all-time greatest Les Mis sketch, I do not want to be forgotten in, in this recent trend that no one has noticed but me of Les Mis sketches. Key and Peele did the sketch fairly early on in the run of their show where they made fun of Les Mis and the production values of it are insane. It is like a note-perfect reworking of the One Day More song with like all of the different people singing. But the subject of the sketch is just why are so many people the subject of the sketch is the crosstalk and crosspatter of that style of musical. So the subject of the sketch is itself Les Mis and how elaborate and ridiculous Les Mis's musical style is. And um, I love that it has nothing to do with anything that Key and Peele typically satirize. It has no, it's nothing to do with politics or American life. It's just a random musical from the 80s. <laughs> and that they're so devoted to skewering it with so much love that you know that they love it deeply, even as they mock it. Um, and it, it really made me laugh. So, uh, Key and Peele's Les Mis sketch, it is the Les Mis sketch to triumph over all Les Mis sketches. <laughs> okay, I have, uh, I have four endorsements. <laughs> all right, it wouldn't be a full self-parody if I didn't tell you about this little farm 
about four, four and a half minutes from my house. So only about 12 and a half hours from here. <laughs> Maybe 13. Anyway, it's really great. It's called Little Ghent Farm and they have like eggs. <laughs> Meat, but incredible bread. So if you're ever in my neighborhood, look me up, we'll go over. We'll go to Little Ghent Farm together. All right. Also, uh, I wanted to uh, ask, has anyone ever heard of the artist uh, Charles Birchfield? Ooh. Oh, you haven't, have you? Um, anyway, a friend of mine, an artist friend of mine, just introduced me to him. I believe he was, I think he was most active in the teens, aughts and teens uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. In his own lifetime, he made money uh, designing wallpaper and did watercoloring on the side. He, he does these incredibly tonally rich watercolors because he layers watercolors in a completely original way. It's almost as if you, you don't associate, I believe, watercolors with thick impasto. I mean, you can't probably physically make an impasto with a watercolor if I'm using any of these words right. Um, but somehow he kind of did it. He kept, kept working and working and working the canvas with these watercolors in order to produce a very Van Gogh-like effect, which is that it's somehow embodying the uh, uh, latent energies of nature uh, seen through kind of a visionary consciousness, even though he was also just kind of a wallpaper guy and he did this on the side and I don't think anyone thought much of it but in fact you can now find these Charles Birchfield books and they're intensely beautiful uh, visionary works of art so I uh, that's that's number two two more you want both you're up for even more okay five six seven all right then the other is have anyone ever heard you know you know the band T-Rex just one person, right? T-Rex is just Mark Bolin. Mark Bolin. Okay. Do people know the prequel band to T-Rex? Is it Tyrannosaurus Rex? Okay. So I thought so. I hadn't really written it down. Like, why would I do that? Um, but uh, there's an a album by the prequel band uh, to T-Rex, Tyrannosaurus Rex, called Beard of Stars which it turns out is fucking amazing record. It's, it's, it's so good. I mean, you've got to trust me on this. It's, it really it will remind you of Charles Birchfield's wallpaper. <laughs> and Mimi's bread at Little Ghent Farm. And, uh, but anyway, and then just to bring this, <laughs> this fucking puppy home here, um, uh, my favorite Chicago movie of all time is Risky Business. I think the single most underrated, and I honestly mean the single most underrated comedy in the American canon, it's a much better, much more trenchant uh, movie, uh, relevant movie than even The Graduate. It's such a great performance by Tom Cruise. Uh, it's, it was sort of a one-off by the writer-director, but it's, it's just, you know, this uptight, upper-middle-class kid turns his parents' uh, house into a cat house while they're away on vacation. It's beautifully done. If you haven't seen it, it's a great American classic. And it invokes the wonderful relationship between urban Chicago and suburban Chicago. It was a great film, so give it up for Risky Business. All right. Thank you, Dana. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Julia. Thanks, Steve. And a mighty, mighty, mighty thank you to Lisa Beasley and Scott Moorhead. Give it up. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is, I don't know, Ann Hepperman. Who's our producer today? 
I think we have a bunch. Yeah. Our producers are Ann Hepperman, Henry Malofsky, and Golden Joe Dassault. Yes. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Our managing producer for this show one more time was Joel Meyer. Uh, Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcast. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Steve Metcalf. Thank you so much for coming. See you.